welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. It's good to be with you, listeners, again this week. Uh, joining me, as always, is Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What's up, man? Did uh, anything happen this week? <laughs> anything go on down to the Capitol? I mean, it's still going on. We are recording this just uh, less than two hours. It's roughly three o'clock on Friday, and and the legislature has to be done by five. They're constitutionally obligated to be done by five o'clock, and they are still casting votes up there. So we are, in fact, they're in caucus right now, according to uh, quorum call, that the Republicans are in caucus, the Democrats are on the floor um, waiting it out. I think they are trying to come to an agreement on which of the vetoes that the House passed, that the Senate will also pass, and which ones the Senate wants to pass and send to the House, but knowing the clock is ticking. We'll touch on the status of the legislative session a little bit later in this episode, but more so next week, um, because it's still uh, developing, and we have... Uh, some imp- important stuff to talk about this week. Before we go too much further, I do think that um, it is very important we we touch on um, you know the tragedy that happened in Texas this week. Um, you know, um, an extraordinary loss of life that um, happens all too often in our country that should be completely prevented, and it's not because of policy decisions that we have made and continue to keep making. Um, um, it is awful, and I I mean <laughs> the fr- like. The phrase like thoughts and prayers sounds so completely empty and like you want to say it because like it's true. Um, But also, man, there's so much more we can and should do on this. Um, You know, I don't know. We I think we many of us thought that after Sandy Hook, there would be um, there would be increased movement on guns in this country. And maybe after uh, maybe after Vegas, maybe after maybe after maybe after maybe after every single time uh, this happened. So. So certainly, um, yes, if you're if you're a praying kind of person, if you're a good vibes kind of person, if you're a like send that good energy out into the universe kind of person, please do that for all the families that are missing their loved ones this week. But please, 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 please also, whether it's calling your legislator or whether it's donating to um, donating to groups like Moms Demand, whether it's, you know, marching or doing whatever, doing whatever you feel like you need to do in this moment to kind of try and um and and make whatever sense out of it out of it you can. I encourage you to do that. But I I just felt like we needed to we needed to start there before we go anywhere else. Gosh, it's just a big deal. I think we will try to put together an episode that goes a little more in depth into this issue over the summer. Uh, but man alive. Um. Also, I on a relative sad note as well. I want to uh, acknowledge that. Uh, Willa Johnson, who was the first black woman to serve on the Oklahoma City City Council, passed away last night in her sleep, according to her uh, family. There's it just got announced a few a little while ago. Um, she is uh, has always been a leader and a, a pillar of our community. And so um, it's even as as we started recording, it's been so great to see so many people's stories chime in. Um, ben Felder did an interview with her and Nikki Nice and carrie bloomert a while back and it was a really moving and like insightful interview so i will try to link to that in the show notes if you haven't already heard it or read it um but uh, certainly our thoughts are with uh, her family as well okay now we also have a guest with us today scott and that guest is tamaya cox toure uh many of you probably listeners know tamaya she's the executive director of aclu oklahoma and also the co-chair of the Oklahoma Call for Reproductive Justice. And we're excited to have her here today to discuss the intricacies of I, what I've been referencing as the four total bans on abortion that the legislature passed this year, because they all have their own nuances. And so welcome to the show, Tamaya. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And yes, definitely sending light and love to Willa Johnson's family. She's meant so much to me and my family. She was really good friends with my father-in-law, so Opio Ture. So, yep, it's it's it, it is sad to hear, but we are going to celebrate the life that she has lived and what she has done for for folks here in Oklahoma City. Yeah, it is always when people uh, like Willa pass away, and you start to hear how many lives they touched. Like you realize that 
there are certain people who are woven into the fabric of our city, of our community in ways that many of us did not fully appreciate or might not have even known. Uh, and so if you're listening to this and this is the first time you've heard of, of Willa Johnson's name, I really encourage you to do a little bit of Googling, right? And, and learn a little bit about the people who built this town that don't often have buildings or streets named after them, right? Like there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people uh, that, that got us here. Um, so Tamaya, there are four bills and maybe we'll just kind of go in order if that makes sense to you to talk about them. Um, I'll, I will read them off the, the numbers up front and then we'll just go down. So they were house bill 4327, Senate bill 612, Senate bill 1503 and Senate bill 1555. They, um, I'll do a little bit of damage in different ways. Um, so let's start with House Bill 4327. How would you describe that bill? And do you have like a, a, is it possible to have a short summary of that bill? I do. I do. I think it's just really important to recognize that these are all part of the same ecosystem that we were seeing and expecting this session, specifically when we knew that the um, United States Supreme Court was going to hear the Mississippi uh, 15-week ban case, we we knew these type of bills were going to happen. So House Bill 4327 is a um, quote-unquote total abortion ban that prevents any abortion after fertilization um, to occur in Oklahoma. There are some very limited exceptions to rape and incest. Typically, we just say rape because we say incest is rape. So if I, you do hear me say just rape, I do mean incest in that. Um, and what is really important of 4327 is that it is out of the criminal realm, and these are strictly civil action lawsuits. So it's not that abortion is illegal or it will be criminalized. It is simply saying that if an abortion occurs, any person can bring a lawsuit against the provider or someone who has aided and abetted, whatever that means, um, a person getting that abortion. So 4327, we've commonly um, thought of this as the Texas style total abortion ban. It, and just to clarify, when you say any person, you mean any person, right? Anybody in the state can bring a lawsuit. Can multiple people do it? Like, let's say there was a, some terrible club of people who said we're all going to sue every time together and 30 of them all file a lawsuit on the same individual for the same occurrence as far as we know that's possible anything's possible because this is such a new territory for um for folks right like this is definitely we've really been calling this like uh, judicial gymnastics because it's such new territory that we don't know how it plays out even though we've seen it recently with the texas and when texas um uh, filed and there's a similar lawsuit or law went into effect. Um, we've seen what's happening and what's happening is people really aren't going to, Texas is different because it has a six week ban, meaning a providers can go up to six weeks. Um, but because there's a total abortion ban, providers aren't performing. Therefore, this is only going to impact people who are helping others get an abortion, right? So this is not going to be about providers, it's about if I think that you helped my neighbor down the street from when I was a kid get an abortion, then I can sue you. And that's wrong. Well, and I think one thing, and Tamaya, jump in here if I am wrong, because it's entirely possible that I am. But um, Andy, it is important to note, it is actually not any person. It is any person can file a lawsuit except state officers or employees who are acting in the context of their state office or their like what they do for their state. And that's really important because that's the only way that this is constitutional, right? Supposedly, according to the Supreme Court who determines all the things, right? The way that this works is that because it is not the government doing it as a, it's a private lawsuit, like that's the trick. Like that's how they, like that's how they get around this and make it like, make it constitutional because it's not the attorney general of Oklahoma. It's not the court clerk. It's not, you know, the healthcare authority or whatever. It's a private citizen. And that's the kind of novel legal me mechanism. So it is anybody can sue except the people 
who normally would bring this kind of lawsuit. <laughs> so Scott, so hypothetically, if it's auntie in Arkansas who catches wind of an abortion procedure happening, they could call and report in Oklahoma and therefore get a doctor reprimanded or that person reprimanded? Is that? That's a Tamaya question. If somebody out of state could do this. <laughs> so I think that is what we're trying to figure out. I mean, typically because it's an Oklahoma law, it would have like jurisdiction would have to happen in Oklahoma. But Bailey, I think you're kind of right on, right? If, if auntie hears that Nisi got an abortion, but auntie's in Colorado, right? Or I mean, it's Arkansas. Auntie can just call one of her girlfriends in Oklahoma and say, hey, this happened. Like there doesn't have to be a, a connection, a relationship with who sues that person. They just simply get to sue. So I think you're very much right that it really opens up these very, um, not he said, she said type of things, but like very nebulous reasons as to how to, to essentially get paid $10,000. And I think that's what the fear is, is that they don't have to have a relationship. They don't have to even know the person who got the abortion. If they did, they don't even know, have to know necessarily like where they got the abortion. They just simply, you know, anyone can bring up, you know, it's a, it's the law. Like anyone can sue for any reason. And in order for me to defend myself, I have to go to court. So this almost feels like intrusion of privacy too, right? Because would abortion in this case not be considered like medical or medical procedure that would be covered under some type of, I know we talk about like HIPAA and other, you know, privacy things, but does that not violate someone's privacy in this way? Great question. And I think that was, we saw that during the presentation of House Bill 4327 um, last week, because there is a rape and incest exception, right? So if for me, someone were to get an abortion through that exception, and you have to report, even though we know that 70% of sexual assaults go unreported, you have to report to fall under that exception. But if I have no reason to know that you, you were raped, and you get the abortion and I sue, the only way that that doctor or medical provider can defend themselves is by bringing in your medical records and that police report. And that seems extremely everything that we think about, you know, small government should be about, right? Like if I am, if the person that had the abortion does not want to consent and does not want to, you know, they don't have any way to, that person has no way to defend themselves if it was a true act. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, so that's a question that I had that's kind of, I think, that's related to Bailey's question. And this may be something we don't know yet, because as far as I know, none of these cases, certainly in Oklahoma, and I don't think in Texas, have been litigated yet. Um, who, on whom does the burden of proof fall in this case, right? Or in these types of cases? Is, is, it the, is it the plaintiff who is bringing the lawsuit saying person, you know, person X had an abortion and I'm suing person Y because I think person Y helped her. Um, is the burden of proof on person Y to prove that they did not aid in the abortion? Or is the burden of proof on the plaintiff to prove that they did? Right. So that's a great question. So the person bringing the lawsuit or challenge um, essentially has to have a preponderance of evidence, right? And it's definitely, it's a civil matter. So that kind of, um, that level of evidence is not as high as like in criminal cases, but has to bring like clear and convincing evidence. But we don't know necessarily what that law does not provide, you know, what all that has to entail. And I think that's part of the bigger issue is that because the law is so poorly written with little guidance is that it does not give notice to the defendant. We do have in this law about what the defendant can and cannot do, you know, what is a preponderance of evidence. So we do see some type of evidentiary uh, requirements or evidentiary guidance, I guess, in the law. But this is new ground for everyone. And I think that's, and I think that's so while the burden is on the person bringing the lawsuit, 
it's still on the defendant to have to prove their, you know, their innocence. And then what, how do, how do we get there without violating HIPAA rules or violate, not even HIPAA rules, violating the privacy of, of a patient? All right, well, let's move on and talk about the next bill because we'll start seeing how everything is interwoven a bit more. Uh, so the next one we're going to talk about is Senate Bill 612. Mm-hmm. Um, Tamaya, so, what's your summary of this one? Yeah, so Senate Bill 612 is actually a carryover bill that was, um, it, it didn't die, but was actually from last session. And what we know, and you all know as well, is that it's rare that we see carryover bills. And we've never seen a carryover bill in abortion area um, except for 6112 or 612. 612 is a typical criminalization bill, simply saying that a person um, is, you know, it will be a felony with, I think, a 10, um, with 10 year um, in jail, $100,000 fine if they performed an abortion. Um, this is typically what we've seen. This is Senator Dom bill. He's tried to push this type of bill. We were extremely surprised and caught off guard, uh, completely caught off guard when this bill was actually heard in the House um, because it did make it to the, to the Senate last session, but it stalled in the House. And again, we know that this type of bill was one of the many of, of their attempt to kind of overturn Roe. Um, and, and that's really the end. It's so, it, again, it came out of nowhere because the the effective date on this bill was 2021. So they didn't even have time to change it to, you know, a proper effective date. Um, and so this bill uh, will go into effect in August um, and, and we'll kind of see. And, and House Bill 4327, the only thing I do want to kind of go back to is it had an emergency clause. Hmm. And again, these are the first, this bill and then 1503 we'll talk about. Um, this is the first time we've seen emergency clauses, meaning as soon as the governor signs it, it goes into effect that we've seen with ab- abortion bills. Typically, they've been a November 1 um, effective date. And that's important because it limits voters' ability to do a veto referendum, right? Like you have to start a veto referendum within 30 days of the end of the legislative session. But if the bill is already, the law is already enacted, then you don't have that opportunity to prevent it from because if you do a video referendum signature collection drive you if you're successful it just puts the bill on hold and for a while until uh it can go on the ballot and then be decided by the voters uh and so with an emergency clause you don't have that opportunity sneaky one one question andy if you've got it pulled up so both um for 612 and then we just did 1503, right? 4327. 4327. Okay. Um, yeah. What were the votes on those? What were the vote counts? Uh, so on 4327, uh, fourth reading was 73 to 16. And, and how many members are in the House? 101. 101. There were other, there was 11 who abstained. Okay. And or, then how about the next one? Because there, weren't there a couple of these bills that like 30 people took their constitutional privilege and like didn't vote? Uh, on 612, it was 70 yay, 14 nay, and 16 like abstentions. Okay. I thought there was, I thought there was one or two where there was like, uh, like there was a, a, a lot more of the caucus that didn't, that, that declined. They didn't want to vote no on it, but they didn't want to show up and vote yes either. Yeah. So on, 1503 it was um let's see 68 12 and 20 abstains so that's the one that's the one i'm thinking of yeah and i will say with 1503 i I wish i loved it was more of a like a a walkout 1503 was and what uh, 1503 is the six-week ban so it is the identical to the texas law again it would ban abortion after six weeks they refer to it as a heartbeat. We don't refer to it as a heartbeat bill because um, it's cardiac activity is the medical term. You know, Dr. Nelson, you know better than anyone. So um, so we kind of refer to that as like a six-week ban. Um, that bill just, it, it kind of came out of nowhere. Not It didn't come out of nowhere. It actually wasn't supposed to be heard. So many of you all know that we do, the House does have some rules. And one of the rules is that when a bill is placed on the agenda, or, you know, going to be on the agenda, 
it typically takes about, it's a 48 hour waiting period, which is, it's crazy to say waiting period when we're talking about abortion, but like 48 hours. So you have 24 hours for people to amend the bill and then another 24 hours to amend the amendment. But because of the way a lot was going on, it was a deadline. It was, it was, it was heard on the, the uh, third reading deadline that the bill wasn't even supposed to be heard. So I kind of go back to and recognize that this is, you know, non, we're non nonpartisan organization, but if there were just 10 more, 15 more pro-choice legislators, that bill never would have been heard because they would have been able to stop the rule suspension. And I think that sometimes we, we kind of forget about like when you have super majorities, regardless of the parties, you're able to kind of walk through and walk over, you know, fundamental rights in a sense. 1503 doesn't is not heard if more pro-choice legislators, not that they had the majority, but were just elected because then they could have um, not had the two thirds majority to to um, to suspend rules. Um, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So that's a good point. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say the other day I had a call with uh, someone that's a big independent voter proponent from another state. Um, and it was our first time to talk. And he found out I was from Oklahoma and he was like, oh, yeah, Oklahoma, well, you guys have Democrats just as a courtesy, right? Like they just get to show up, but they don't have any power. And I said, that's that's right. He was, of course, sad that we don't have any independents that are currently in the state legislature either. Um, but I was like, it's funny that people in other states know that about us as well, that it's like a it's such a super majority. And we're not the only state like that, but we are perhaps the most notable, at least right now, because of these laws that we're discussing. Uh, well, let's move on to 1503 then. So again, so 1503, um, again, part of this ecosystem of, of criminalizing body or not criminalize of um, essentially criminalizing pregnancy. But with 1503 is very similar to 4327 in the sense in the sense that it did not um, it allowed for the six week ban, but it's not criminal. It's all in the civil um, act. Um, civil action part of it, similar to 4327. So again, if someone um, thought that an abortion was taking place after six weeks, um, they could potentially sue the provider or sue anyone aiding and abetting. 1503 does not and did not have a um, rape, um, did not have a rape um, exception. And I think it's really interesting for, for, for listeners to really kind of if it's interesting, maybe not. But 4327 and 1503 are very much identical in, in the impact and the effect. But the language is so different because 4327, they were very heavy on like the nullification, saying that you could not go to court and challenge the constitutionality, like that the state, um, that the state was not implementing this. They were very, very intentional more so than in 1503 about the language. And I think that's the other part that we really have to talk about is like this lack of access to courts. Is it legal to even tell people they can't challenge something in court? I don't think so. I mean, like, not like it's stopping us because we're challenging, but I think that- It wouldn't be the first time we pass things that are not constitutional. <laughs> exactly. That's the mindset. And that's what I really- when we talk about like for for me as a, as abortion rights activists, when we talk about this is not the end, this is just the beginning on rights that are going to be trampled on. But when we see this language and we normalize this language, that is the that's the concern. If we're normalizing putting in Oklahoma state statute, who can challenge or you you know who can bring a challenge or when it's correct to bring a challenge, and we normalize that language then we think we're going to put it in every other bill. And that is where I think, you know, people on both sides of the aisle really can come together and say, this is too much and this is too far. And we have a responsibility and obligation as voters to say, no, no. It feels like increasingly both the executive branch and the legislative branch are competing for superiority as if they want to be the only branch of our government, right? That they're they're constantly trying to be like, you know what? Uh, we're going to let the governor appoint all the judges and or we're going to pass laws and put language in there that says you can't even challenge them. I'm like, well, that's the explicit opposite of 
separation of powers and how our founding fathers designed our system. Well, and what's what is what is so, you know, what is so frustrating? I mean, it's not the only thing that's frustrating, but like you asked Senator Treat. Um, I mean, I didn't ask Senator Treat because he won't talk to me, but somebody asked Senator Treat about his, you know, SJR 43, right, that wanted to remake the judiciary in Oklahoma. And he was very explicit, right? He wasn't saying we have unqualified judges. He wasn't saying that they weren't that they weren't interpreting the law correctly. He wasn't saying that there was something intrinsically wrong with the process. He was very explicit. He said this is about making sure there are judges on the Supreme Court of the state of Oklahoma who will support any of the abortion restrictions that we pass right like that's like that's not an exact quote but that's essentially what he said has nothing to do with interpreting the law right it seems like they are less and less they are less and less they care less and less about whether something is actually consistent with the law what they care about is the judges who will say that it is regardless of what the text of the law actually says right um and that's really really scary because it's you know to my you made the point that's lack of access to the courts but i would even say they don't care if we have access to the courts or if someone has access to the courts. They just care that they know what the outcome is going to be no matter how many lawsuits there are, right? And like they are trying they are trying to adjudicate the outcome of these lawsuits, right? No matter what the like legal arguments are. And like that's that's terrifying stuff, man. Like that is what like authoritarian governments do. That's like I'm not sure if that's the like literal definition of a kangaroo court, but I think it's pretty close, right? Um, I mean, that's what's like that's like that's what's that's what's terrifying, right? I mean, I'll just put it like this: I texted Andy about this earlier, um, like earlier today. I got a, I got a text earlier today from a person who 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 has who previously has been a Republican congressional staffer. Uh, they're not now, but a former Republican congressional staffer who now lives in Illinois texted me earlier today. and was like, dude, what the hell's in the water in Oklahoma? <laughs> like, what are you, like what's, what's going on down there? And I was like, bro, like you don't, you don't even know. Like you've been in that, like you've lived in that world and you don't even know. Right. Like it's anyway, sorry. That was well, a little and, bit of a like, other piece. So related to what you're saying, Scott, is the fact that in addition to ensure that this viewpoint stands, you know, even if it is, you know, challenged in the legal system, you also are bucking against even what the people want. So uh, some of our um, members of the press have been lifting up um polling data and information that signals that a majority of Oklahomans don't want a full abortion ban or even like how far many of our pieces of policy have have shifted. And so I even wonder like what really is the the root of going as extreme as we have and getting to this point, especially and it and it, it clearly isn't appealing to the base in Oklahoma because the base in Oklahoma is signaling, you know, not even that far. But like, are there like national aspirations or like, is this a, you know, a way to say, you know, we, we talk about the concept of being in the top 10 and being, you know, number one in this. Is this an area that can be bolstered as Oklahoma has gone the farthest in this area? So it's it's really concerning to the point that you lifted Scott that like there's so many efforts in place to try to make this enshrined but also for the fact that it doesn't even line with true Oklahoma values i think that's such a strong point bailey and what we know is though we we had seen several states do texas style like bills but none of them went, I mean, several Southern states, several very conservative states, but many of them did not like this private right to action. They thought many conservative Republicans, um, legislatures did not like the private right to action because they're thinking long-term of what else, you know, like in California, we've seen uh, Governor Newsom um, using that same language against gun manufacturers, you know, and, and so I think that is such a great point is that there's no alignment with Oklahoma. We're seeing polling, you know, recent 
Planned Parenthood, I was with Planned Parenthood for nine years prior to coming to ACLU. And we did a, when we thought we were going to see a constitutional amendment, we did some polling. And that, and that was in 20, that was early 2020, right? So it, what Roe wasn't on the top of people's brains and forefront the way it is now because of what could happen in June. But even then people were like, no, we, we fought, we thought we had a pathway to victory. And so I think that really goes to show there is unalignment right now. Governor Stitt was recently on Fox News. I don't know if you all had that chance to see that horrible. He did such a horrible job talking about compassion, but could not answer some of the questions of, of the Fox News reporter when it came to the statistics of, of, of women in Oklahoma. Um, and, and he was saying, well, we represent, he represents all of Oklahomans and Oklahomans don't want that. Well, he clearly knows that's not the case. So what is it? What truly is it? And then, but it doesn't matter because the impact is real, right? The impact is that Oklahoma providers stopped performing abortions last week because, because of the emergency clause. Um, they, they were scared that they were going to be in the middle of a procedure and he signed it. And then what happens now? And then more importantly, the idea that Oklahomans have less rights than their neighbors in the, across the country. And that means something. Uh, right to abortion is a fundamental right as of right now. And the fact that we do or not- Or just I, the idea of this populous state that we live in and the irony that we have less, less rights, rights than other places. Than our neighboring states, like that should be concerning to all of us. I mean, uh, that Fox that Fox News interview that you referenced to Maya, man, that was, that was something. Him trying to explain that. And Bailey- Bailey, didn't somebody didn't somebody once say that in politics, if you're explaining, you're losing? Didn't somebody say that? Yeah, yeah. Wasn't that? Uh, I, I think said. I think I think the governor's uh, the governor's uh, professional tweeter tweeted that out a few weeks ago about how uh, in politics, if you're explaining, you're losing, and they've been uh, they've been doing a lot of explaining lately. That- I saw that interview as well. It was super. It was just a super, super interview. It was really super, you guys. You should definitely go watch it. Super interview. Okay. All right. Um, let's let's do the last uh, of these bills. And that was Senate Bill 1555. Mm-hmm. So Senate Bill 1555 is what we was um, an amendment or it was it, it was an amendment, but it was trying to clean up language from Senate Bill 918 from last session. And what we call these are trigger laws. And trigger laws um, are, again, are new to the abortion um, ecosystem. And essentially what they are saying is that um, if or when, and it's probably when now, that Roe is overturned. So our, the, the, the Supreme Court case that gave the right to an abortion um, back in the 73, like when um, Roe is overturned, then automatically all of our pre-row laws are going to revive themselves. And our pre-row laws are from the 20s. Um, so, you know, almost 100 years old, um, essentially outlawing an abortion. But in the midst of it all, when they did this last session, again, it's just really bad and poor if there was any teachers out there. Like, they did not double check their work. Because in the last session when they did it, when they were, um, created this trigger law, they got rid of all of their anti-abortion bill laws that are currently law. It got rid of everything. So they came back with 1555 and they said, yes, we're going to revive all of the pre-row laws, but we're also going to make sure that all of our anti-abortion laws that are extremely restrictive now are still in place. So 20 week ban, a uh, 72 hour waiting period, um, you know, must have be done in a, um, a, a clinical hospital. So like all of that. So 1555, we just said it's like our trigger law, kind of our trigger law plus doesn't go to effect, does not go into effect until or unless Roe is overturned. So this is the question that I've had actually. And, and we've gotten to some of it with the differences in the language and the two bounty laws and, you know, but, you know, you talk about, okay, so there's the two bounty laws and, and they have kind of, you know, different language in terms of like legal mechanisms and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Then you have this, the, the, the six week ban, the, like the so-called heartbeat law. Now you've got this extra law that like basically says, yeah, like our trigger. Is it like, 
okay, we're, we're going to make abortion extra, extra, extra illegal. Like abortion is like super duper illegal. Like, is this, I mean, are they just trying to make themselves feel better by saying we've passed more anti-abortion laws than you know what else, right? Like if you're, if your goal is to make, to make as certain as possible that there is no access to legal abortion in Oklahoma, do you actually need all of this? Or are they just being like super redundant because either they're looking for political points or they're stupid or both? Right. I think such a great point because you can't even write this session alone. Forget about bills that have been passed before. This session alone, these bills are conflicting with each other. Like, how do you pass a six week ban and then you have a total fertilization ban, you know, and then you have a criminalization ban with no rape or incest. And that's the other part of it is like, so 1503, the six week ban doesn't have a rape or incest exception, but 4327 does. So if these pre-roll laws are resurrected. Does the rape and incest exception still exist? Does the exception for saving the life of the mother still exist? Does the exception for ectopic pregnancy still exist? We just don't know because nowhere in any area of law do we have bills by the same party in the same session so conflicting with each other that they can't come. I mean, that's the whole purpose of conference committees. Like I've been a lobbyist for so long, right? When you can't figure out and you have bills that are conflicting with each other, wait and come together. So there were it was it was the political points, is what I have to say. It's like the political points. We've got to put this on a walk card. We've got to make sure that you know we're talking about this, you know, in the next commercial, but truly completely dismissing and disregarding the impact it has on Oklahomans' everyday lives. And that should be offensive to all of us. I mean, and it is, but there's also like completely just, and this is like, you know, like the like political like hack, like forget about the, forget about the like terrible real impact, but just like the politics of it. Like if you're, you're creating more problems for yourself, right? <laughs> right. Like you're so focused on passing as many anti-abortion bills as possible. You're opening yourself up to all kinds of additional right? Like legal challenges and paperwork, like, right? Like it, I mean, I'm, I'm not a lawyer and I probably wouldn't be a good one if I was. The money, Scott, (laughs) the amount of money that's going to be spent on trying to fight these things or get, even get clarification from the confusion, right? From the lens of the taxpayers to, you know, the advocates challenging the, the laws, like that's money that could have been spent in so many other places. Well, and that's the deal, right, is that it's, Scott, it's not the lawmakers that are held responsible for this. Mm-hmm. How many of these folks are going to be termed out? All the leadership will be termed out in two years, right? And so uh, so they're not going to be around by the time this stuff gets heard um, to, to be responsible. But Bailey's point is well made. It's on us. Like, we're the ones footing the bill for this stuff. To say nothing about the the personal impact of these laws on uh, on women in uh, the, mm-hmm. the whole community, right? Like there's a, there's a lot to it. So uh, Tamaya, I'm glad you brought up the conflict between the bills. That was actually gonna be my question is, surely they don't all mesh together collaboratively, like in a good way that there's going to be issues that have to be adjudicated at some point. And so um, there was a lawsuit filed uh, recently challenging uh, one, now two of these bills, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Correct. So we are so grateful for organizations like the Center for Reproductive Rights, which is a national organization based out of New York City, and they are the experts on these anti-abortion bills. Um, They had, because Oklahoma was just seeing for decades, seeing so many anti-abortion bills, they have taken a specific interest. So since about 2000, uh, mid-2000s, they have been the entity filing these lawsuits. So once again, they came in um, and super successful, right? They have like a 99% success rate. Um, and they they graciously, we've been working. And when I say we collectively as repro justice um, activists, been working with them since the beginning of session because we've been anticipating these bills. Um, and they filed a lawsuit, the first lawsuit on April 28th against um, Senate Bill 1503. And really focusing, this is, they file, we file our cases in state court. 
Um, a lot of the times we've seen these kind of play out in federal court. That's how we got to, you know, the Mississippi case at the Supreme Court. But they recognized early on that, that the Oklahoma's constitution is actually broader than our federal constitution. So we think we actually have more protections in our state constitution. So since about the 2000s, they've been really filing their cases successfully um, in state court. And so they filed um, 1503 um, and really focusing on um, many more than just, you know, Roe is still law of the land, whether it's for a couple more weeks or maybe forever. We could talk about what our my thinking is on how that's going to play out later. But, um, you know, so really challenging just access to abortion, but really, really focusing hard on this access to courts. You know, we as 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 folks living in Oklahoma, as citizens, as people should have as much access to the courts as we can. And the fact that this denies it, um, they're really focusing there. And that is why I think a lot of, um, regardless of where people sit ideologically, should be um, supporting this lawsuit because of the access to court part. So because that lawsuit, because 4320, um, I'm sorry, because Senate Bill 1503, the six-week ban is very similar to the um, total abortion ban, 4327, they simply amended their lawsuit to include 4327. And they did that yesterday. And we have a hearing on June 1st. Um, so they will argue in front of the Oklahoma Supreme. I don't know if it's the, I don't, I don't think it's the full court, but they will be arguing their case, um, our, our case then. And I serve as a plaintiff in that case because, again, I chair the, the um, Oklahoma Call for Reproductive Justice. I serve as a plaintiff and we're really excited. Like it's a long shot because they could simply just wait until see what happens with the Dobbs case. Uh, but but we truly believe that we demand access to safe and legal abortions in Oklahoma. People should not have to travel hundreds of miles away um, or people should not be forced into pregnancies that they don't want or can't have. Tamaya, thank you so much for being here today to talk about all of this. You really explained it in ways that um, even the three of us with our massive minds, I'm kidding, but the, the we, uh, that we couldn't. And I, uh, I think on behalf of our listeners, we appreciate your hard work um, that you do both at the ACLU um, and at the, the Oklahoma Call for Reproductive Justice. Uh, it means a lot to, means a lot to thousands of people uh, every day. So we appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. Well, before we go, we want to take a few minutes to kind of give a, a I'll say a brief lay of the land for what's happened in the past week uh, at the state legislature with the caveat that things are still happening. So uh, as of this moment that we're recording at four o'clock on Friday, the House has adjourned sine die. I don't think the Senate has. Speaker McCall is having a press conference in about 30 minutes. Um, and so what, like anything, if, if there's one thing we can count on, it's change. And they're still in special session and there's another special session happening in two weeks uh or yeah two weeks and so lots evolving um as we knew i think since our last episode the i guess last friday the legislature passed the budget the general appropriations bills and all the other funding bills that go along with it they sent them to the governor he had five days to act that ended yesterday thursday at 5 p.m and so he held a press conference yesterday, which involved the word mayonnaise. I know that I've highlighted that a few times, but that is uh, an offensive uh, condiment to me. And it just was a weird thing to throw out there. And it came back up today. Uh, what? On the wait, 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 whoa. Do you know about this? <laughs> what is this about mayonnaise being offensive to you? Yeah, I'm not a big mayonnaise fan. Have you ever had mayonnaise? I'm yeah. not a mayonnaise person either. I'll eat it in potato salad, but that's about it. Yeah, I know you. But, you know, people try to rebrand it as aioli, but that's not. No, so no, 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 no. Have you had like, have you had like real mayonnaise, or have you just had that crap that comes in a jar from the grocery store that like you know tastes like garbage? Uh, both, both garbages. I'm just not a mayonnaise. I'm a mustard guy. I mean, I mean, love, same. Love me, love, love me some mustard, but like good homemade mayonnaise is one of the best things in the entire world. Bailey's gagging. <laughs> oh, Bailey, 
gonna I'm gonna make you I'm gonna I'm gonna make some homemade mayonnaise. We're gonna maybe put I it, just haven't had the right mayonnaise. So we're gonna put it. We need gonna, to have an open mind to try it. We're gonna put it on a sandwich, and it is gonna change your life. <laughs> Bailey says no mayonnaise will be the right mayonnaise, Scott. <laughs> Anyway, what, what what was it about mayonnaise? I didn't. I missed the mayonnaise reference. I was so fixated on being offended that you hate mayonnaise. No, uh, he, what was the governor said something to the effect of um, the about the ARPA money and that he didn't want it to go to pet projects. He didn't want it to be spread like mayonnaise over the whole state. And so today, Representative Ryan Martinez brought a bottle of mayonnaise with him to the House floor. <laughs> <laughs> on his desk that's a, uh, was this before Ooh, he, he's on one then <laughs> was that be- was that before or after representative martinez called the governor a racist yeah well to be clear he recalled his comments racist he didn't say governor stitt is a racist he said governor stitt's like racist and divisive comments or something like that about tribes. No, it was related to uh there was a bill on um related to Driver's, driver's license. licenses and tribal nations yeah. mm-hmm. that the governor vetoed before mm-hmm. that they brought back to override. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they overrode that veto today, along with a bunch of others. And I've I've started making a list, but we're waiting for the Senate to to adjourn sine die. So we'll see um, exactly what all that looks like, and probably talk about that more next week um, with a full breakdown. But. Uh, essentially, at the press conference yesterday, Bailey, did you watch it? Do you want to tell us what the governor said? So, in short, um, there's concern um, about the the budget bill um, because, and the governor line item vetoed the budget first of all um, because there's concern of. At the root of it, the type of tax cuts that have been taken, right? And some of the ways that the legislature is spending its money. From the governor's perspective, the legislature shouldn't be giving money to fund private prisons, and they shouldn't be taking away a vehicle tax, right, when they could be doing things that would help the people, in his perspective, right? And from his lens of helping the people, it's eliminating the grocery sales tax. It's providing more relief through the income tax. And so he wanted the legislature to swap out. So he vetoed those specific areas of the budget where there would have been um, revenue taken away to basically swap it for those other areas for the way that he wants to frame relief. Because for example, another bill that he vetoed was the income tax rebate that was supposed to go out to families in December. That would have been a $75 check for individuals and $125 check for married couples. Uh, But he said that that's not real tax relief and he wants to have another conversation about tax relief. So he called also, in addition to those line item vetoes, he called his own special session in addition to the special session that the legislature called to address ARPA to do two things. To one, address um, ARPA funding and then also to figure out ways to provide relief through elimination of the grocery sales tax, whether it's temporary or whether it's permanent. So he wants to bring back the legislature on June 13th. And there's a lot of mixed feelings about all of those things. And we've learned more about those feelings today. And I, I want to uh, clarify one thing. he, The governor didn't actually do everything that he said he was going to do yesterday. Like he said he was going to veto some of those uh, line items in, in the general appropriations bill. But he didn't do it today. The general appropriations bill, he didn't do it yesterday. And so... He also didn't sign it, which means the bill just takes effect without his signature. But by not vetoing those things, that money is still appropriated the way the legislature wanted it to be. Today, the legislature overturned or over overrode a bunch of his vetoes. Some of them, even one of them from last year, right? There was a veto he had last year that came back up or that they brought back up 
um, so they could veto it. They or they could override it. They overrode the veto about uh, executive branch cabinet members making financial disclosures in the same way the governor and the legislature has to. He had vetoed that. There was a lot of hoopla about that, particularly as it's come out about um, Education Secretary Ryan Walters and how much money he receives from um, uh, you know school choice groups and um, kind of all of this. And so there was a lot of a lot of message signaling today the legislature's displeasure with the government with the governor and i think that there's even we've seen in the last hour some fissures uh between the house and senate right on 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 things like uh tax rebates so the governor wants to be the one to you know give people money the legislature was at first but now it sounds like at least between the House and the governor, there may be some alignment as they go into this special session. And, well, mean, and Andy, and, to uh, your point, right, about how things are going to change, there's going to be a press conference in the next 15 minutes. So whenever we wrap up our uh, time on the pod this week, there'll be new information of perspective from the Speaker of the House, Charles McCall, right? Um, so we'll, we'll see even this afternoon where the house stands on the things that have transpired so y'all y'all know y'all 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 know because we do this every week y'all know i'm not a very i'm not a very smart man okay there's things i know and there's things i don't know but the way i understand it is that the governor stood up yesterday and said that because of because of joe biden and the biden administration we have rampant inflation because the government has given everybody too much money, right? And that this out oh, of yeah, control. Oh yeah, there was there was a this, um, a picture during the press yeah, conference this, comparing certain food items that have hit, you yeah. know, 12, 13, 14 percent of inflation rates. So so there's 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 this uh, out of control inflation because the government has given everybody too much money, right? And Governor Stitz solution is for this government of the state of Oklahoma to give everyone even more money. Right. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. There's good money yeah. and there's bad money. <laughs> so, there's so, good money and bad government. So, so when, so when money is bad, the Kevin Stitt money though is good. And so, so when, when governor Stitt wants to pass a tax cut, um, so people have more money to spend on things that doesn't cause inflation, but when the federal government does it, that does cause inflation. Um, that seems to be the argument, which does not make a ton of sense to me. Um, the other thing is, you know, I, I just, I mean, it's, you know, all like kidding aside, like it's bad economic policy. You can actually make a fairly, I think, I think you can make a fairly compelling case that if you were going to give like targeted tax credits to the manufacturing sector in an effort to like close the supply gap and increase production to like, like uh, that would actually reduce inflationary pressure because it would bring more goods to markets. So there'd be less competition for those goods. So prices would come down. Um, but individual tax cuts and rebates to individual taxpayers is probably not the way to do that, um, particularly when we're at a time of record inflation, which probably is due in part to the COVID stimulus packages that were passed during the Trump and Biden administrations, as well as the economic uh, rebound that's happened as we're coming out of the pandemic and people are spending money that they saved for the last couple of years. So there's like there's myriad there's myriad causes but it seems i think a lot of economists do seem to agree that one big problem there is just a lot of money in the economy right now um and it's burning really really hot and giving people tax cuts is just going to make that worse um i so I think, scott so you mean to tell me trump money is good <laughs> Biden money is bad but stint money is good. Stint yeah, money is it. good too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly what it is. Um, so that's one thing. You know, the the other thing is the the other thing is I I don't know. I mean, I don't know this is even going to happen, right? He's calling them back for a special session. You know, we've talked about special sessions before here on the pod. Um, they don't have to do anything. They can literally gavel in and gavel out. Um, we just saw you know there's some some sputter on Twitter about how. Um, the house, like you said, Andy may be gearing up to engage. I think McCall said, we're ready to roll up our sleeves on, uh, on tax cuts. He actually said tax reform, but it's not reform. It's just cutting taxes. But 
I mean, again, y'all jump in here and tell me if I'm wrong, but the, the, the place where tax cuts have died the last two sessions has not been the House. It's been the Senate, right? Um, it has been Senator Thompson and Senator Treat who have been reluctant to engage on, on further tax cuts. Um, and while the governor may want the tax cuts a lot, and while Speaker McCall may want the tax cuts a lot, hint, hint, because they're both rich, um, while they may want the tax cuts a lot, um, I don't get the feeling that Senator Treat is in a mood to do any huge favors for the governor um, or for uh, for Speaker McCall, I should say. Um, there is a, t- I mean, I, 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 I don't, you know, I'm not in the room between those two, but I think there is a, there is a lot of bad blood um, right now between the House and the Senate because of uh, failure of the House to advance uh, education, the uh, education vouchers that uh, Senator Treat was very passionately putting forward this this session. Um, and I think there's also some bad blood about SJR 43. Um, so, you know, this, this, it's not very often that you see the, the Senate uh, pro Tem's two signature issues uh, go down in a single legislative session. Um, and, and, and so uh, I don't know, we'll see, we'll see what happens on June 13th or 16th or whatever it is when he's called it back into a special session. But um to me, it is not clear that there's going to be a, a ton of action on, on taxes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I imagine they'll do something. You know, as uh, as we like to joke, there's no relief like tax relief, and that's uh, what these folks definitely think as well. Uh, and as we wind down, I'm going to highlight one, uh, one last ridiculous statement that came from the legislature today. Um, Nondoc... Uh, I think Trace was the one that first shared this before I even saw it in my inbox. But it's a statement from uh, a number of state senators and representatives. And the just the title alone made me spit out my coffee. But it says, statement, legislative Republicans comment on tax credits and woke ideology. <laughs> just uh, uh, essentially, it's a bunch of folks who don't want Panasonic to come here and take our money and build a battery factory because Panasonic um, supports, as they phrase it, um, activism and advocacy specifically in support of LGBTQ plus communities. And I was like, this is a just a bananas time to be alive, right? Like that's <laughs> Bailey's rubbing her temples. Um, all right. Well, we'll end on that. I'm not even going to go through it. I, it's exactly who you'd expect. And um, it's a statement. It has, no no bearing for anything but listeners if you leave with anything remember it's signy die but things aren't finished yet so we're gonna have a lot of stuff to talk about over the next few months at the very least well because we have special session that's right i mean we're gonna it's gonna it just keeps going the does the fun ever stop that's really that's the truth there bailey thank you for being here today of course thank you andy scott thanks for being here too man he doesn't even look up from scrolling on his phone appreciate it you looking up mayonnaise recipes there is that what's happening no not yet listeners thank you for being here as well uh that brings us to the end of this episode uh stay tuned come back next week listen as we'll have a probably the first of several episodes that are more of a recap of this legislative session there were uh, roughly 400-ish, 434 measures that were sent to the governor this year. They weren't all signed. Uh, we're not going to do a summary of all of them, but we will try to give you a better picture on where things ended up uh, and where they may be going over the summer. Uh, as a reminder, the deadline to register to vote or to update your registration for the June primary is on is next Friday. It's June 3rd. So if you've moved recently or if you haven't registered and you're somehow listening to this podcast and still haven't done it, please go do it. You can go to the election board website and print off a voter registration form. You can go to any tag agency. Some libraries have it. Your county election board has them. Register. Or even when you go register to you know change your license or whatever, they'll have yeah. them there too. That's right. Yeah, every tag agency has them. And uh, while you're at it, ask somebody else ask your friends your family your neighbors you don't have to push any policy on them just ask them hey are you registered to vote do you know there's a primary election this month on june 23rd i think right so uh 
keep that in mind. 20, when is the election this month? Is it the 20, it's the 28th. Okay. So tell them, you know, hey, do you know there's an election on June 28th? You should vote. We should all vote. All right. Well, um, that brings us to the end. Don't forget, decisions are made by those who show up. We'll see you next week. <laughs>